You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 18. Kent Carney is a lifelong falconer, longtime board member of the Peregrine Fund, and the founder of the Archives of Falconry. His close friendship with Morley Nelson lasted for many decades, and Carney played a central role in the decision to relocate the Peregrine Fund's headquarters to its current home in Boise, Idaho. We discussed with Mr. Carney the history of American falconry, as well as the influence that Morley Nelson had on the sport. Carney also explains the role that Morley played in the recovery of the Peregrine Falcon, and the influence that the Peregrine Fund exerted to support the establishment of the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. My name is Kent Carney. I've been associated with the Peregrine Fund for years and years, and I am proud to be one of the first two members outside the founders that were asked to be on the Peregrine Fund's board in 1977. And I was on the board that made the decision to move up here, as a matter of fact, which was kind of neat. But after I retired from the board, after seven years on the board, why I, uh, I've been a, a lifelong falconer. Let's say, put it that way. And at one point, I was disposing of some of my collection based on a a matrimonial explosion and um, disposing some of these things. And a gentleman asked me, he was getting old. He was buying some of my things. What am I supposed to do with these things when I'm done? So I suggested he go to McGill University in in Canada because they were famous at at one point. But they don't really care that much about it. And he said, but that's Canada. And if you're going to give something valuable, it should be in the United States where you could take a tax deduction. So I looked around and we couldn't do business. You know, I, I, I said, we've got to collect these things. There needs to be a place to put them, pull them all together. Uh, the n- normal place would have been a North American Falconers Association, but they don't have a place. They're, you know, their headquarters shifts from one secretary's basement to the next. We had just built, we, the Paragon Fund, had just built the site here on Boise, and uh, we had the room. The Paragon Fund had a pre-already established uh, 501c3 tax-deductible status, which I think is, is a mandatory thing for any kind of a, an archival collection. And finally, why uh, most important, the four founders of this outfit who were making all the decisions in those days were all hardcore falconers. These guys all got into the Peregrine Falcon based on their association with the bird in the sport of falconry. And so they saw the need to to do something to preserve, preserve our history because at that point, the early 1980s, Falconry, for, for example, didn't really even exist to speak of in the U.S. Uh, until the early uh, late 20s, early 1930s. But by 1980s, those first early pioneers were dying off, and there was no place where their things might go. And, I mean, we saw lovely falconry books going for a dollar a piece at garage sales and stuff like this. And so I went to the Peregrine Fund, the board, who were all, all of them dear friends of mine, 
and we all agreed that we needed to save the history just like we needed to save the bird. And consequently, we, we undertook the establishment of what was the Archives of American Falconry, but which, because of the nature of our collections, has become the Archives of Falconry. So we proceeded to collect from there. We founded it formally, we got our first donations in 1986, and we've been at it ever since. So I was here, I got this idea, convinced those guys we should do it. They all bought off on the idea. Then I ran the thing for the next 20 years. I received a salary, but it was so ludicrous, that which I had set myself, incidentally, but it was so ridiculous that it might as well have been a volunteer thing. And I spent a lot of money of my out of my own pocket to help support it. Anyway, I ran the thing for 20 years and finally retired in 2007. But it has been a lo- labor of love. Our attempt up here was originally to preserve, collect and preserve the tangible evidence of the history of the sport of falconry in the Americas. And that expanded then. It turns out a lot of those are stuff that we got early from those old falconers. There was no American art then. There was no Amer- were no American books. There was no American equipment. So a whole lot of what we received in the early donations were things that they had collected in there becoming interested somewhere else. And on that basis, that's why we shifted from the archives of Falcon or American Falcon to just the archives of Falcon because our collections were vast with things that did not come from the Americas. But we went at it. I've worked as a, a volunteer ever since, just trying to keep do what we can to preserve it. Falconry played an integral role in the development of the Peregrine Fund. As I say, all the founders of the Peregrine Fund were enamored with the Peregrine because of their association in the sport, but it was the passion that they felt for that bird that made them do this thing because they did not come up with this captive breeding thing and all just to put birds in their own backyards. They felt that it's like Aldo Leopold said, you know, without that bird in the wild, it wasn't. There were cliffs over a lake with a peregrine falcon nesting on them in the old days, and it really meant something. And when the peregrine went away, all it was was a lake. So these guys wanted the bird back in the wild as much as they wanted them on their fist in the sport. Technically speaking, the sport of falconry is the practice of the pursuit of wild quarry in its natural state and habitat by means of a trained bird of prey. And that's it right there. The emphasis is on wild quarry and natural state and habitat. Uh, It's a hunting sport, a history that goes back millennia. We can date it back at least four to 5,000 years. Uh, It was there, it originated as a, a means of putting food on the table, really. And it developed into a sport and it developed into a royal sport because of the what it takes to, to undertake this thing. Uh, it was the sport of kings, very literally, throughout medieval times. It's famed in throughout the whole period of chivalry and whatever. Uh, Shakespeare is filled with falconry references, and it's interesting because he never explains any of those references. When he uses a, a falconry term, um, Portia looks after the little Iases. Well, Portia in The Merchant of Venice is looking after the little children, but an Ias is a young falcon. And so when she is looking after the children, he refers to it as that. And uh, the taming of the shrew, Petruchio treats Kate like a treat, you treat a falcon. He uses the falconer's terms. Romeo, or Juliet, on the balcony says, st, Romeo, st, oh, for a falconer's voice to lure my tearsel gentle back again. Well, 
She's not talking about getting a hawk back. A tearsel gentle is the male falcon, and she is wanting the return of Romeo. So as I say, but Shakespeare never made an attempt to explain it because all the people at that period in history understood the terminology. Anyway, so it's something I'm real proud of. Yeah, okay. that's super fascinating. But I, I could go I on. I know about the Shakespeare references. I mean, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, obviously there's this long, really interesting history yeah. of falconry that goes back thousands of years, as you said. Um, and it once was like a much, much more common sport oh, than yeah. it is mm -hmm. today. Falconry basically didn't exist in North America until no. the 1920s no. or 1930s. No. You know, that's a little bit before the time when Morley started yeah. getting interested in falconry. I mean, maybe you can talk about where the sport of falconry like was, this sort of the state of falconry in North America yeah. at the time when Morley started okay, to get well, involved and then the influence that he had on it. Well, it, it's, it's interesting because the American approach to falconry essentially is different than most places in the world. Most places in the world, it was taken up as a hunting sport. But it's interesting that most of the people that were involved in falconry in this country were more natural history oriented. So they were interested in, in the birds and the birds history and the birds in the wild, um, which is kind of a different approach. But there were guys in there who saw the birds, saw the birds in the wild, and then shifted into this, morphed into this interest in concentrating on birds of prey and then onto falconry. It was a sport Put it this way, it died in Europe, 1600s, 1700s. Uh, Cromwell did away with it in Britain in the 17th century, uh, basically because they didn't like people having fun. Let's face it, the Puritans are like, uh, and oh, they got into some real hassles between the king and the Puritans because the Puritans didn't want you flying your falcons on Sundays, for example. But at any rate, it was gone, and it was a marginal sport at the very best. European falconry came to the United States. There was no indigenous falconry here at all. But when it came here, it came at a time when it was big in Europe, and it was a big thing, And but it died out drastically, um, mo mostly because of the cutting up of the land, but especially the, the development of firearms. So instead of using a hawk to kill a duck, some, it's much easier to just shoot him. And consequently, it became something of an anachronism. It was virtually dead. It was being practiced by a few people in Europe, but, but not much. And when it came over here and a few people got interested, uh, oh, there was a wondrous article in the National Geographic in 1920, and that stirred everybody all the kids who ended up falconers all go back to that, you know, and salam, and, and it was a, a, a major thing. But in those days, and for a long time, through the time when, when Morley was starting, falconry was more a having than a hunting sport. Guys were, were able to get peregrine falcons. This is mostly done in, in the East, particularly centered around some of the, the colleges, young college students that were interested. And they could take Peregrine falcons, which is the ultimate flagship part of the species of the, of the sport, but it was a lousy place to hunt them, but they weren't doing much hunting. Morley was an innovator in that disconnected from all the rest of that going on in the East. He sort of developed it on his own. He knew some of the people that were interested, but falconry is, is going out and catching wild quarry in its natural state and habitat. So Morley went out and caught wild quarry in its natural state and habitat and set an example for people who, these guys in the East who would have, you know, three or four peregrines and isn't it marvelous and all, would come out here and Morley would have one bird, but he's, he's killing pheasants with it. All of a sudden, it, it helped the penny drop. And really, falconry as a hunting sport 
didn't get really rolling in this country till the 50s and the 60s. And Morley was at the, the head of that wave that was, was going on. But he lived in the West, and the West became more and more, you found more and more falconers centered in the West. And then, of course, with the war, and people got moving about a great deal, and more people saw it out here, there was more interchange between falconers. And he became acquainted with some of these names in the East who revered him. Here's a guy who's out there, Geez, yeah, he's he killing things, you know. And it was really something for them. He played a, a distinct part in, in falconry then. I reprinted, when I was a college kid in 1949, I reprinted a falconry book and sent it out by subscription to falconers. And I got to know Morley then. By 1957, why I, uh, my first trip through the West here, why I went through, uh, through Boise, and I spent the night uh, in my sleeping bag on Morley's living room floor up there on 73 East Way in, here in Boise. And he was highly respected and revered because of that role. And of course, it was in that timing, as he moved here and got established here in Boise, that he came onto the Snake River Plains and the river and found the breeding situation there. And it just, one thing led to another. I was working with the Falconers Association in 1971, making a presentation for a falconer proposed set of falconry regulations that could be used as a, uh, a model in states to get some uniformity to its administration. And this was at a North American Wildlife Conference, and I'm making my pitch there, and who's there? Who shows up but Morley? And Morley's got this great binder under his arm, and he was just on his way back to Boise from um, Washington, D.C., and the binder was all 8 by 10 glossy color photographs of the canyon, which he had been using to sell the, legis the Congress on the concept of the river and the, uh, the area. So that uh, ties me into, into Morley to a degree. Morley was active in our early organization in falconry here, although he wasn't of what we would call a, a political falconer, which is, stands well to his, uh, his benefit, I must say. But he, uh, he was highly re regarded, and he did a lot with it. And he took it beyond, and he, there were some people, I mean, a lot of us did not believe in beating the drum and encouraging people. But what he did with the birds was by showing people the bird. I mean, that's that's the most rapid way you can convince somebody that it's a good thing. They see a bird right there, four feet from their nose, and it's, all of a sudden, it's a, it's a different subject. We've had our detractors, mostly people who don't understand the sport. It, uh, you don't kill much. The only less efficient killing method that I can think of would be running around trying to put salt on a bird's tail with, with a salt shaker because <laughs> falconry is, uh, it pays great, great dividends in recreational hours per amount of game killed. Myself, for example, and, and a great many more like me, we go out with a falcon and when we're hunting, and if we catch something, I'm done for the day. And if the bird flies and flies well and doesn't catch something, it can be just as good a day. If I catch something every third time I go out, I would be, you know, that's miraculous. That's wonderful. So uh, we don't make that much of an indentation on, on game populations. And uh, we suffered a great deal in the 60s and 70s and 80s when, uh, because of DDT, there was this drastic decline in the Peregrine Falcon, which was the reason that the Peregrine Fund was established, because of the population decline. But in that decline, the do-gooders, not knowing much about falconers, well, the falconers take the baby birds away from the mommy birds, and therefore why uh, they must be the reason that the birds are going down. And it took us a long time to convince 
these naysayers that the, the role of DDT and the fact that the Falconers were the first guys to see the decline and record it, and they were the first people that helped document it and fight against it, and it was Falconers that founded the Peregrine Fund. And it's no accident that when the Peregrine Fund, Peregrine Falcon, finally was back into eligible to be taken off the endangered species list, the Secretary of Interior, Bruce Babbitt, got on an airplane in Washington, D.C., and flew all the way to Boise, Idaho, and made the announcement of taking the Peregrine off the endangered list in the building, the Interpretive Center, right here at the World Center for Birds of Prey. He knew who did the work because it was falconers that did it. It was falconers who had the passion to pursue it. They knew the bird. And somebody once said that, you know, a falconer with a bird and a fist develops a greater insight into that bird's biology than all the falcons seen through binoculars by an ornithologist. Because you live that bird's life. You deal with it on a daily basis. You learn the species inside and out. So... We did a great deal. We put up a lot of the money. Uh, one of the first things I did in the Peregrine Fund was to uh, look after fundraising. And one donor in 10 had an association with falconry. Mm. But one third of the money we got came from falconers. And it was falconers that donated their birds to do this. It was falconers that donated their time. Their insight into the bird allowed us to use falconers' techniques to bring that bird back, whether it was hacking the birds, the way we re released them, the way we raised them so that they did not associate us with human beings. Uh, all of that came from, from falconers one way or another. And I often said that if the condor had had a constituency like the falconers' role in peregrines, why well, we'd have been a whole lot further ahead with the condors today than we were. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, during the the 60s and the 70s, yeah. as you said, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of raptor populations are declining because of DDT, DDT and yeah. simultaneously the Peregrine Fund is doing all these efforts to try to restore populations yeah. and capture breeding and all that stuff. And then, you know, what Morley was doing at that time, he was putting together these films, yeah. that, you know, creating, giving, putting raptors in the spotlight in a way that they never had been before. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess like what I wonder is what that was like for you and for other falconers. I mean, you and lots of other falconers have been like very interested in birds of prey for a long time, oh. mm -hmm. right? But like, I mean, do you have any memories of seeing any of these prominent films that Morley made like air on television for the first time? And like, what are you thinking, realizing like, there's like millions of well, people watching this program yeah. about the natural history mm -hmm. of a golden eagle? Well, one, one of the things, as I say, the falconry community, it's not an easy sport and it's not something you want to encourage. And it discourages just by the, the very nature of the sport and its intense lack of time to deal with a bird and its lack of vast returns in the matter game produce. It doesn't appeal to a lot of people, but we didn't want to see the bird exploited. But at the same time, Morley had the birds and Morley used his knowledge of keeping the birds in falconry as a method. So he goes to the Rotary Club where he was a, a long time member and he takes Slim the Eagle with him and he makes friends for the Eagle. And he was promoting conservation with falconry birds or with techniques that he learned. And okay, and maybe that owl that he had would never have been a falconry bird, but 
he knew about keeping a bird and he knew about how to manage them and train them and handle them. And consequently, he was able to do that. And he was able to jibe with Disney in using his bird of prey skills developed as a falconer to present these raptors to the American public and did a tremendous amount of PR. I mean, they, uh, you see, see other things. Uh, the, uh, the use at the Air Force Academy of the prey falcon or a uh, falcon as a mascot and whatever, and they fly them at the flight shows at the at halftime in the game. And even people in the Colorado game department said, you know, that probably saved the lives of more prairie falcons than all the state regulations, you know, prohibiting their shooting and stuff like that. People saw them, people came to know them, but these were things that were done through town. They weren't falconry, but they were using falconers' techniques for the benefit of the falcons themselves and for the benefit of birds of prey in general. And they needed it in those days because things were grim. There's no doubt about it. But it was grim not because of the falcon. It was DDT, you know. Soon, it eventually became understood. But a lot of people just didn't want to get off that, well, the falconer is a convenient scapegoat, therefore we got to prohibit that or they, they're doing bad things to the birds and things. Hmm. But uh, in fact, utilizing what we knew and how to handle the birds essentially contributed extensively to, to raptor conservation. And an understanding today, I mean, we get urban populations of birds, 26, 28 pairs of Cooper's hawks in the city limits of Boise. You wouldn't have found that in the old days where people were shooting them. The same thing, you've got Harris hawks in Tucson, you've got Merlins in Edmonton, Alberta, birds that have come and moved into the cities. People don't molest them. And they don't molest them because, among other things, they've seen Morley's films, they've seen seen it on TV, and they've come to understand a lot more that these things ain't all chicken hawks. So. Somebody who has a background in wildlife biology mm -hmm. and has, you know, been a part of raptor research early in my mm -hmm. career, to me, Morley Nelson is a very well-known name. He's a celebrity yeah. in my mind, right? Absolutely. But I've chatted with a lot of folks about this project I'm doing, and, mm -hmm. and most people have not heard the name in Boise, like most people I know, right? That surprises and, me. In Bo if, if any any town in the world is conscious of birds of prey, I would think it was Boise, Idaho. Right. And I mean, yeah. I think people know that Boise is a special place for birds of prey, but I feel like they're losing. I don't know. I guess the question I'm trying to ask is like what it was like in the 60s and the 70s when Morley was releasing these films on mm -hmm. a regular basis and he was doing this really meaningful work of spreading awareness about birds of prey globally. Yeah. Um, was Morley a household name, at least in Boise at that time? Was he a celebrity? He, he was well known in Boise. There's no doubt about it. And of course, Morley being in Boise is why the Peregrine Fund is here. Let's face it, you mm -hmm. know, because when uh, we ended up moving from Colorado and Hauser-Busch took over an adjacent property to ours, needed to run a highway through and didn't want to be uh, the Scrooge that, uh, you know, nixed this endangered species program. So they said, you guys want to move somewhere, we'll move you wherever you want to go. And at that time, Morley was on the Peregrine Fund Board of Directors. And he said, you got to come to Boise. And it was a, an excellent choice, I must say. His, his line of reasoning was that there's a million millionaires up there and you won't have any trouble raising any money. Well, that, that re remains to be seen. We've had a, an awful lot of, of civic uh, support here in Boise and in Idaho. And from, uh, I must say, from Cease Andrus when he was uh, Secretary of Interior and all. He came to, he knew what was going on because I think he was probably a member of the same Rotary Club Morley was. Mm. So uh, 
when he was Secretary of Interior, it was significant, believe me. People don't know Morley outside the falconry world. The people, as you say, you know, in your background in, in raptor biology, you'd understand. But the average Joe Sixpack doesn't, nor do most biologists, actually, which is unfortunate. But it was truly gratifying to me to see Morley recognized when they changed the name of the conservation area. That's just, it could not have been nicer. If Bruce Babbitt coming and honoring us at the Paragon Fund for what we did for the Paragon, when you put Morley's name on the Snake River Birds of Prey area, that was an equal honor that was totally deserved and I think well called for. And uh, I don't know why it took so long. So... You mentioned, you know, their move to Boise and the fact that you were on the board and Morley was also on the mm-hmm. board at that point. Was the proximity of this area and the city of Boise to the Snake River Canyon, was that a consideration in that decision? It helped, but the real consideration was Morley. Let's face it, you know, we had a guy who was gung-ho, very outspoken, who really wanted to see us up here. We needed a place like this. One of the other areas, or several of the other areas that we went to, might have been nicer to live in, but harder to get in and out of. It didn't have a population base like this, and it was a natural. I mean, it was a a marriage made in heaven, so to speak. There were people here that were interested. Morley had gotten this thing, and there are people that were interested because of the, the conservation area. So people were conscious of it. And let's face it, you know, if you look at the uh, the commemorative quarters they put out, the Idaho quarter has got a peregrine falcon on it. Now, admittedly, the only competition we would have had was to put Idaho's famous potatoes on it. And with all due respect, it would have looked like so many horse apples on the quarter. But we've got a peregrine on there. But it was a natural, and Morley was the moving force that got us here. I would point out to you and to anyone else who comes up here that when we came up, made our initial visit up here in 1983, looking for a site that we finally picked here, why, there was nothing on this ridge, but cheat grass and garbage, period. That's all. And everything that you see today on this ridge, which is a heck of a campus, really, we put here. It was a project that was done because the falconers were doers. And it was the falconers swinging a hammer that built breeding barns out here. The guy who ran the project in Colorado that came up and got us rolling here was on on the seat of a bulldozer cutting fire breaks around here. We didn't hire someone to come in and build this for us. We built it. And that's one of the things about falcons. They go and they do. And this has impressed a lot of people who have been able to help us financially because they see that we're not talkers, we're doers. And uh, we did it. When the Peregrine Fund moved to Boise, there was... The, the protection given to the Snake River Canyon area was, was still not permanent. It had been withdrawn by C. Slanderous when he was Secretary of the Interior, yeah. but it was a 20-year withdrawal. And so we were in that 20-year period mm-hmm. after 1980 where it had protection, but everybody knew that protection was going to mm-hmm. expire. I guess I'm just curious like, if you were aware or involved at all in any of like the Peregrine Fund's efforts to like help establish that protection? I was not, okay. personally, no. Once I left the Peregrine Fund board, which was the year before we moved up here, mm-hmm. actually, I have been involved in the archives. And the archives has been, you know, has taken more of my time than I had time that I had to begin with. Um, 
fortunately, I was, I'm a retired Army officer, so I had that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was able to devote it full-time to the archives and whatever. But uh, it was a focal on the archives. But the archives is... And, and, and the Peregrine Fund have a, a very close symbiotic relationship. I mean, we are a part of them, but at the same time, we are separate in that we have our own endowment. We've raised our own funding and all that sort of thing. Because right from the beginning, we realized that we could not use Peregrine Fund money. Uh, there were too many people donating to the fund to save the Peregrine that would not want to see their, their funding go to support the preservation of the history of this nasty blood sport. Let's face it. You see? So, so on that basis, right from the very beginning, and it was a total consensus of opinion of all of us, we have been a, a self-sustaining, self-supporting financially organization. So you founded the archives in 1986. Is that Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, as you know, I've been digging through this interview that you conducted with Mm -hmm. Maureen Allison a few years later in 1990. At that point in time, you know, Morley was in his 70s then. And you talked about how you had met him, you know, decades Years ago. Oh, yeah. What was your relationship with him like? I mean, was this, were you guys close friends at that point? We, I don't know that I was ever close friends with Morley, but we were always on the best of terms. Uh, he was on the board of the Paragon Fund most of the time. The whole time I was on the board, for example, and he was interested. And he's just a kindred soul. This place really, particularly in those early years, was not an organization. It was a family. And we were all intermeshed and whatever, and we were all helping as best we could. And my side of it in those days happened to be the archives. But uh, Morley did an awful lot of drum beating for us and helping find people uh, and uh, for the board and things like that. But um, it was a, uh, a unified operation, you might say. But we were all in it together, and we'd all go to breakfast. Or a bunch of us, particularly working on the hill, would go to breakfast together and things like this. Awesome. Uh, I can't think of anything else that's important unless there's well, anything else you can think of that you think is important to mention. We've, uh, it's been a tremendous, you know, I was trained as a wildlife biologist, basically, mm-hmm. but uh, had, a, had a very prominent biologist convince me that might not be the best career. But at any rate, I followed it as a, quote, hobby, unquote. And it's, uh, it's brought me a lot of joy. It is truly satisfying to see the peregrine falcon and what falconers have done to bring that bird back. And it is back, and it is back in force. And the populations now that we've got are way beyond. Not, I don't know if we they are so much beyond what we had before, but they're certainly way beyond what we knew we had before. It's been an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to uh, to have a even a small part in that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time. One thing I didn't mention was yeah. was Morley uh, early on produced a movie. Uh, modern falconry. And, and eventually, one way or another, that got shown to, to some Arabs. And I think the Sheikh of Kuwait saw it and invited Morley to come to Kuwait. And Morley went out there and had a big time and uh, saw Arab falconry, which was very, very active in those days. But he did it in a different manner than they did. But we all, you know, it's, it's different from culture to culture. But uh, he got established with the Arabs. And I must say that that, that establishment and that of a few other people lent, it, lent themselves to uh, a wider interest among the Arabs uh, in conservation, for example. And Sheikh Zayed, Zayed bin Sultan al-Nahyan was a provincial Arab sheikh in the 50s and 60s and whatever. But he was a thinker way beyond his years. 
and he became interested in it and became aware of falconry in the West. Uh, a British falconer got out and was very close to him. But the British falconer was also a friend of Morley's. <laughs> and so Morley's head keeps popping up in all these places. And eventually this, this sheikh um, became head of uh, Abu Dhabi, which was one of seven trucial sheikhdoms in the Persian Gulf that were each little enclaves of Arab sovereignty. And Zayed himself saw with the advent of oil all of a sudden that things were drastically going to change. And he convinced his fellow Arabs to, uh, and these other little sheikhdoms to band together. So he was the founding father of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he is also a hardcore falconer, to say the least, uh, as hard and as dedicated as anybody. And in 1976, he called the first international conference on falconry and conservation. And included in the delegation that went out there, and not to count myself and Tom Caden a few, but was Morley Nelson. And Morley was there and uh, filming the whole thing and having a big time. But he was known to those people because of his earlier connection in Kuwait and um, he stayed active with that Arab interest, I think, and uh, he made an impression on Sheikh Zayed, mm -hmm. which is good because Sheikh Zayed made a tremendous impression on falconry and falconry's uh, place in the world. And the United Arab Emirates was significant in falconry, finally uh, being designated by UNESCO as an intangible cultural heritage. Admittedly, now this is country by country, it's not falconry worldwide, but it's 17, 18 countries or something like that today. And it's a realization of the cultural background in this thing. And as I say, you know, it goes way back in a lot of countries, uh, the Arabs, Japanese, the Europeans. Uh, and as I say, wherever you go in this thing, Morley's name pops up. Yeah, it's definitely true. That was our interview with Kent Carney, the founder of the Archives of Falconry. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>